Pod Save the World is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person. SeatGeek gets you closer to the action for the best value you can find. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It is the easiest way to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere and with just a few taps. You can find great seats at a great price. You will not regret it. It will make your life infinitely easier than trying to scroll through 500 websites to find the best options. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices. You can find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of tickets, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code WORLDS today. That's promo code WORLD for 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. Welcome back to Pod Save the World, everybody. I had thought I was going to take a brief hiatus from the show this week because we were doing a number of all-day meetings. And then our good friend Donald Trump decided to create a constitutional crisis by firing the head of the FBI. So on the line today is uh, my friend Matthew Miller. Um, Matt was the director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's worked in the United States Senate. He is someone who understands the practices and procedures at DOJ and also knows a lot of the individuals who are still there. So, Matt, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Tommy, of course. Happy to do it. So, full disclosure, many Democrats and many Republicans have been all over the map on Comey and his the way he's handled the Clinton investigation. A lot of Democrats praised him when they felt like he exonerated Hillary Clinton back in July of 2016. They criticized, rightly, in my opinion, uh, his decision to send a letter to Congress that made it sound like he was reopening his investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails just days before the election. You are not one of those people. You have been totally consistent. When Comey did his press conference on July 5th, 2016, you said it was totally inappropriate and a total departure from FBI and DOJ standards. Can you explain why you were so critical of him then and now and what those standards are that you felt he was violating? Yeah, so uh, it's a pretty simple rule at DOJ, which is when the department investigates someone. So the FBI has enormous power. The Department of Justice has enormous power. They can look through, you know, with warrants, they can look through your emails, they can tap your phones, they can interview your neighbors, your coworkers. They can really, you know, damage your reputation. But they do that by, you know, th- there are some simple rules they're supposed to abide by. And one of them is if they're going to publicly say something about you, they do it in court and they do it by way of bringing an indictment, uh, by way of, you know, bringing you up and trying to, to prosecute you in, in a court setting where you have a, def- a chance to defend yourself. And there's this neutral third party, either a judge or a jury, who gets to decide who's right. If they investigate you and they decide they're not going to bring charges and they're not going to put the weight of the department behind uh, what they say in court, they're supposed to shut up and quietly go home. And you do not, um, it's just this fundamental rule. If you're not charging someone, you don't come out and then say, 
well, I'm not going to bring charges, but their behavior was careless and they might have gotten some classified information, but it's hard to prove. And Jim Comey just seemed to come up with this different rule for Hillary Clinton than applied to anyone else. And I thought it was completely inappropriate for him to do it. So he did the a hearing the other day and he basically said, I saw two doors, right? You know, sort of conceal or disclose. Did you think that was just a cop out? Was that just bullshit? It was total bullshit. It was a cop out he came up with uh, now to justify something he did back then. Let, let's be honest. It, the, the reason he sent that letter was because he put himself on this path starting in July 5th. So like he violated the rules doing the press conference. He then went up in co- to Congress a couple of days after that press conference in July and testified about it in a way and gave much more information than an FBI director would ever give about a case. And then he turned over all the FBI's internal files to Congress about it, which they promptly leaked out in the middle of the presidential campaign and created a bunch of you know, damaging news cycles to, to, for, for Clinton. Um, and it kind of set this precedent where he was going to handle the investigation different than he did anything else. And that got him to this place where he ended up sending the letter. And it had nothing to do with this decision of whether to disclose or conceal. And, and conceal is, by the way, a euphemism for all the Department of Justice's normal rules and practices. That's what <laughs> right. the department is supposed right. to do. It conceals. If, if you want to use the word conceal, that's how the department operates every day, because that's what they're supposed to do. But, but you know, he ends up sending this letter, I think, honestly, because he was worried it was going to leak and he was going to get criticized by Republicans in Congress. And he thought he would win or he thought Hillary would win. And so he didn't want to be accused of being a shill for her. And so he bent over backwards to appease Jason, Jason Chaffetz and all these other Republicans who are on his back. And in turn, he ends up, I, I think you can make a very good argument, backed up in data, tipping the election to, and electing Donald Trump president. Yeah. My options were disclose and try her in the court of public opinion or not, right? Or prosecute. Yeah. Seems like that would have been a much better option. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, you know, this, I, even if you grant him this, this odd choice he came up with of disclose or conceal, I don't know why he had to tell Congress immediately. There, the, the, the department has this longstanding rule that you don't do anything in the 60 days before the election that, that could be seen as influencing the election unless you absolutely you know, have to for some investigative reason. And that would be, say, if evidence is going to be destroyed, if witnesses are going to flee, then you take whatever, then the investigation comes first. But there was no destruction of evidence that was possible. They had uh, Wiener's laptop in their hands. There was no urgency at all to do it. They could have waited. They could have told Congress after the election, beside the fact that everything they had you know, was, was you know, basically stuff that they had before. There was no new thing to investigate anyway, as they you know, eventually right. confirmed. Right. And, and this is the point in the conversation where every so-called wise man in Washington says, well, you know, if he'd held on to it, it would have leaked. And, and my response to that is always, well, if they couldn't hold on to information that long without leaking, they should all quit their jobs because those guys investigate much more sensitive things every single day without leaking it. But I guess that's besides the point. That's right. Leaking is a management issue. And, and by the way, leaking it and you can manage a story that's leaked. It's much different than sending a letter where you officially announced an open investigation. The magnitude yeah. couldn't, be, couldn't be greater totally agree. So fast forward to last night, this shocking announcement that Jim Comey has been fired. You worked at DOJ, you understand the people, the culture, the mission of the place. Like, What do you think about this decision? And what are you hearing from people who are still at DOJ or at the FBI about what happened and, and how they're sorting this out? So everyone I've talked to last night and this morning, either either people that are still there or people you know, who, who were there with me that have left are, are completely shocked because... 
look, there, there, is, there is one principle. We just talked about a bunch of rules that Comey violated. There is one principle at DOJ that is more important than any other principle, and that is that the FBI, the Department of Justice, has the ability to conduct criminal investigations free from interference with, from the White House. And then you take that rule and you multiply it times 100, a factor of 100, when it comes to investigations that involve the White House. Right. So so the president shouldn't be directing investigations or firing people over investigations, say, if it was into a company, if he wanted to help the company. If it's into the president, his campaign associates, it is even more sacrosanct rule. And I don't think there's anyone that believes. I mean, let, let's be I don't think they could have come up with a, a more laughable justification for firing Comey than it was over how he handled the Clinton case. I mean, no one thinks yeah. Donald Trump cares about that. Um, it, no. it is a farce. So he has just violated the, the, the most sacrosanct rule, and he's done it with, the, you know, with two accomplices, with Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein, both of whom are you know, supposed to be the ones who protect the Department of Justice from political interference, and, and they didn't. You know, they buckled when they had a chance to stand up to Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us, like see some darkness inside of Jeff Sessions and have feared him since the day he was nominated. But but Rod Rosenstein is supposed to be a professional, nonpartisan guy. He worked at the Department of Justice during the Clinton administration. He was an assistant U.S. attorney. But he released this absurd letter that seemed to be written solely as a pretext to allow Trump to fire Comey. What, what did you make of that letter? And it's and to me, in some ways, that was the most shocking part of what I read yesterday. So I'll say two things about the letter, one about the content uh, and the second about the timing. First on the content, you know, typically Department of Justice letters, they cite rules, they cite practices, they cite precedent, and there's some of that in the Rosenstein letter. But then he takes all of these quotes um, from former Justice Department officials who were gone from the department that said things in real time back in the fall. That reads a lot more like a political opposition research document. It's a political document where you pull out um, a bunch of quotes and use them to justify what you're doing. And you already see the White House coming out and using it and saying, well, there are a bunch of Democrats who criticize Comey. And if they criticize Comey, um, as, as is noted in this Rosenstein memo, well, then it's perfectly appropriate to fire him, which is a, you know, a leap, obviously, to get from criticizing him to firing him. So that's one thing. And then on the timing, let me tell you the way I, – I don't, I don't know if you remember this from, from dealing with DOJ somewhat when you were at the White House. The, the way DOJ moves is slow and deliberate. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if, you know, the department needs to open, you know, order like new toilet paper for the bathrooms, it takes weeks and, you know, three memos. <laughs> right. um, the idea that Rod Rosenstein on his own in the first two weeks of, uh, in his tenure as, as, as deputy attorney general decided, you know what, I'm going to just launch this review of Jim Comey's tenure as he is conducting the most sensitive investigation possible. And I'm going to write this memo to the attorney general. And in the same day that he gets the memo, the attorney general, without any taking time to consider it, consider it, to deliberate, to ask for other views, turns around and writes a letter to the president on the same day. And the president then on that same day decides to fire Comey and have one of his henchmen, his, his personal bodyguard, Banana Republic stuff, walk a letter over <laughs> to, to the FBI and, and deliver it. I mean, it, it just defies any belief. It is so transparent and so obvious that they came up with an outcome. The president wanted to fire Jim Comey, and they worked backwards to try to find the most plausible way to do it without it being obvious what it's all about. And that's the Russia probe. Yeah. Okay. So this is the thing, right? Everyone who's observing this 
like to their great credit, you know, you had Jeffrey Tubin, who's a legal expert and analyst on CNN last night, saying, give me a break with this Rod Rosenstein letter. The only reason that he is being fired is because there's an ongoing investigation into uh, whether Trump's aides coordinated with Russia to interfere in our elections. The notion that somehow they suddenly care about how Hillary Clinton is treated is ridiculous, etc. So when I was at the NSC, I spent a lot of times in meetings with the deputy FBI director, a guy named Sean Joyce, who you know looked and sounded like an expert from The Departed. He was not a guy you wanted to piss off. You know, he would he seemed like he had prosecuted <laughs> he prosecuted a lot of bad mofos in his day. What the hell happens with this counterintelligence investigation now? Does it get kicked to the deputy? Are you worried that this thing could be squashed if he names like Chris Christie or some other supplicant like Rudy Giuliani to be the next FBI director? Like, how does this work now? Boy, that is the million-dollar question. So um, the deputy director of the FBI will take over as the acting director now while Trump uh, nominates, you know, find someone and nominate someone. And that could take a while. I mean, I guess, I guess they can do it tomorrow if they just don't vet him um, because they've done that. <laughs> they've done that. They've, they've pursued that model before. Like with Mike yeah, Trump. they love that one. But yeah. If, they, if, <laughs> yeah, if they do a real search, it will take some time to, to consider it and come up with someone. And then you would think a pretty rough confirmation process, uh, you would hope anyway. Um, but in the meantime, the, the acting director of the FBI will oversee it, and Rod Rosenstein from the DOJ side will oversee it. But there is now this question about the leadership of the investigation all being compromised. So you have Rod Rosenstein, who ultimately is responsible as the deputy attorney general. Mm-hmm. I think his actions in writing this memo and being complicit in this firing absolutely raise, you know, call his objectivity into doubt. Um, the head of the National Security Division at DOJ, which is the prosecuting and investigative division on, on the DOJ side that does counterintelligence investigations, is headed by Dana Bonte, who is the, the U.S. attorney in, in the Eastern District of Virginia, Northern Virginia, and who is the person who took over as deputy attorney general when Trump fired Sally Yates. I think right. you know, he's he's still hanging around on an acting basis, looking for a permanent job. I think you have to question whether he can carry it out. And the problem is, so look, they can't come in and shut down the investigation right now. I mean, that, there would be leaks and resignations. They would never get away with it. But the way these investigations work, there are big decisions and little decisions that the leaders, the politically appointed, theoretically Senate-confirmed leaders get to make. So you're pursuing one line of inquiry. You see a lead in a, a, a separate but related line. You have to decide, do we pursue that or do we not? And that's right. where the leadership matters. And you have to have someone who is the leader that is willing to, to, to pursue it wherever it goes. And I don't know how anyone can have faith that anyone at the Department of Justice is willing to make those tough calls right now. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, it feels like Donald Trump couldn't more fully have put his thumb on the scale here. Do you think there's any chance the new FBI director could restart the investigation into Clinton's emails? Is that even possible? I mean, it's possible. Uh, you can always restart anything. Uh, it would be laughable. I mean, that case was always uh, a clunker from the beginning. I mean, everyone who, who, yeah. who works in the Department of Justice, Hillary Clinton was never going to get prosecuted for, for disclosing classified information or mishandling classified information. Just, there was never going to be a case there. It was kind of a right-wing fantasy that got turned into a big investigation. And I don't even think I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical whether that even needed to be a full, full investigation, but there was never going to be a, a prosecution. If, I mean, if they did that, it would be the clear sign that the department of justice has completely gone off the rails. And I mean, I don't know what I mean. 
we already have a clear sign that the Department of Justice has completely gone off the rails. <laughs> yeah. the, the FBI right. director has been fired for investigating the president. So this would be worse. But, you know, we're already there. We're already into to really uncharted waters. You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. Pod Save the World is brought to you by Stamps.com. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like my podcast. You can listen from where you want, when it's convenient for you. So why the hell are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours, their slow service, and the generally terrible experience? You can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, except fly into a blind rage, you can do right now from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. But unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. You can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Right now, if you use the promo code CROOKEDWORLD, you can use this special offer, which is a four-week trial, and it includes postage and a digital scale. Do not wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you click on anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Crooked World. That's Stamps.com. Enter the code Crooked World. With Stamps.com, you get all your postage you will ever need, and you never have to go to the post office again. It is great. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Lyft. Want to make some more money? Drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. Lyft believes that being a rideshare driver should be fun. If you're having a good time, so are your passengers, and it's just an overall better experience. Only Lyft offers in-app tipping. When you drive for Lyft, you get 100% of the tips, and your drivers are not fumbling around for cash or generally pretending they don't have it. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since the feature was introduced. That's a ton of money. Express Pay lets drivers get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. There's a new AMP device which uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. It is a lifesaver at the airport when there are 700 Priuses lined up in a row. You can earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips. It's a simple formula. Happy drivers at Lyft mean happy passengers in Lyfts. Maybe that's why 9 out of 10 Lyft drivers get a perfect 5-star rating. So join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash crooked world today, and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com slash crooked world. Try lyft.com slash crooked world. It's a limited time only. Terms apply. Go today. So FBI directors, they're usually appointed to 10-year terms. They're not like judges who receive lifetime appointments, but I believe only one FBI director has ever been fired by a president. Others have resigned early. Are you worried that this is precedent setting? Like, can Congress speak out and do anything to prevent yet another norm from being eroded? Because you know, normally there was just sort of seen as a political cost to hiring a problematic FBI director. Like Bill Clinton had a notoriously awful relationship with his FBI director, Louis Free, right? But he couldn't fire the guy because he thought it would just look so bad optically. Clearly, we're in another planet here, and Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about any optics and cared more about Jim Comey being on TV too often than he did about what's going to be a massive reaction. I mean, is there any way to keep this from from being precedent-setting, or are we just are we screwed now? I mean, this is the question about everything with Trump. And, you know, this goes back to releasing his tax returns, uh, to whether he's going to divest his his businesses, his private businesses, you know, when he joins or when he takes the the, the oath of office. 
he has just blown right through all of these norms. And at every time, there's been no one other than Democrats who will stand up and say, you know what, this isn't appropriate. And this is a real test. We keep saying, you know, I feel like we keep waiting for, you know, what's, what is the point where Republicans in Congress will stand up and say, you know what, enough. And if they don't stand up and say enough here, they have to think about what it means for, for this administration, obviously, um, and what it means for this investigation, what, whether we ever found that, you know, whether we ever find out the truth about what happened. But then, yeah, I mean, once these norms are eroded, you can never go back. That, that's, that's the thing, especially about the Department of Justice. So, you know, I was talking about DOJ's independence. That's not written into law anywhere. It's not written into the Constitution. There's no, there's no rule anywhere that says the president can't direct who gets prosecuted, who gets investigated, what investigations get mm-hmm. quashed. It's just all norm and practice. And you've right. had an attorneys general in the past who are willing to stand up for that norm and that rule. And we just saw an attorney general and a deputy attorney general who won't, weren't willing to stand up for that. And once that precedent is set, there's nothing to stop um, uh, any future president, any future attorney general from ignoring it other than, you know, the other men and women in government being willing to stand up and say it's wrong. Right. I mean, yeah, the, the comparison we're hearing a lot, the Nixonian comparison is, is to an incident called the Saturday Night Massacre, which was in October of 1973, President Nixon wanted to fire the special prosecutor in charge of the Watergate investigation, demanded his attorney general did it. Uh, Elliot Richardson, he refused. The deputy attorney general, William D. Ruckelhaus, also refused and was fired. And so the solicitor general, Bob Bork, finally complied with the president's request to fire the special prosecutor. And ultimately, what happened there is a lot of Republicans in Congress and in the Senate stood up and said, no, this is enough. I, have you seen anything that leads you to believe that might happen here? Like the Grams and McCains of the world who, who get a lot of credit for being independent-minded, have they said anything that makes you feel like they might be putting their foot down here? Um, no. I mean, Chuck Grassley, who's the <laughs> chairman of the Judiciary Committee, the, the Senate committee that oversees DOJ, was just on Fox a little while ago, and his answer was, suck it up and move on. So, yeah, that seems to be the talking uh, point. You know, that seems to be the talking point. If we're putting our faith in Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, people like that, I- I'm afraid we're going to be pretty disappointed. That I, you know, I, you think back, you think about the, you know, you think about Watergate. I mean, if Jeff Sessions was attorney general then, it, sound, it seems like he would fire the special prosecutor. And it seems yeah. fairly obvious. If Mitch McConnell had been the leader of the Senate instead of, you know, Howard Baker, uh, who was a prominent senator at the time and eventually, you know, went to Nixon and said, you have to step down. Nixon probably never would have left. I mean, there's just been a ch- there's been a change in the Republican Party where they are just unwilling to stand up for these basic traditions of American democracy. You know, so right, we're 110 days in. Trump has fired his national security advisor, his deputy national security advisor, the acting attorney general, the FBI director. There has been a tradition in this country of treating those positions differently, treating them with the respect they deserve for being, you know, important in terms of law enforcement, of rule of law, for national security. I am every day struck by how little you hear about that, the general sort of chaos in the national security team for Donald Trump. Do you hear more about this from the people you talk to or work with who are still in these institutions? Are they nervous? Uh, I can tell you people at DOJ are nervous. And people were already nervous about Jeff Sessions. It's hard to overstate that. People were nervous about, about you know, whether he would enforce civil rights, um, 
whether he would respect uh, criminal justice reform, and, and clearly doesn't. We just know his, his, his beliefs on that. But there, even people who disagree with Sessions on a lot of things hoped that, you know, he's someone who came up in the department. He'd been an assistant U.S. attorney. He was U.S. attorney for, I think, 12 years. And there really is this culture at the department. You don't have to work there very long to get kind of, you know, this, this culture, you know, deep in your bones where you respect independence. And um, people hoped that he would be someone independent. And he pretty quickly showed he wouldn't be. You know, he's walking around all the time talking about this is the Trump era, which is something that, you know, attorneys general just aren't supposed to talk like that. And then everyone went, well, so Jeff Sessions isn't going to be the one to stand up for the department's traditions, but maybe Rod will be. You know, Rod has been here sort of through both administrations. He'll be the one to stand up for us. And last night we found out that Rod isn't going to be that person either. And so now yeah. I think you're going to have a lot of people at DOJ have to decide, you know, do I just leave or do I stay and try to fight? Do I try to hang it out and, and do what I can from the inside and be prepared to resign or be prepared to, to be a whistleblower? It's kind of individual decisions of everyone there. And, you know, unfortunately, you, most of the people you talk to are like, I don't know how long I can stay here. And you want to yeah. say, look, stay and fight and tough it out. But, I mean, you ask yourself, would you stay? I mean, it's hard to imagine. I don't know. I really don't know. And you're right. And, you know, I think all of us sort of hope that Donald Trump will feel some shame. We'll see the headlines and wonder if he maybe made a mistake. But he spent the morning and last evening with childish attacks on Chuck Schumer, calling him a crybaby, attacking the the service, you know, Richard Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut's record of service or something. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. And this morning he's meeting with with Lavrov, Putin's top diplomat. It's like, I can't tell if they're actively thumbing their noses at us or if, you know, they're just that stupid. I mean, I, I think I sort of lean towards the latter, but I don't know if you have a take here. I think the staff are that stupid. I mean, you hear these reports that they thought this wouldn't be that controversial, which just shows yeah, how, how, you know, how idiotic they are. It shows two things. It shows how politically stupid they are. It also shows that no one there has any clue about the traditions of the United States government and how it's supposed right. to work. Um, right. but, I, but I would put Trump in a different category. I think Trump is rubbing our noses in it. You know, I yeah. think this is a dominant thing for him. He's showing, look, I'm the boss. I'm the one that gets to decide what happens, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And none of you can stop me. And, and you know what? Until Republicans in Congress stand up, he, he's kind of right. Yeah, he is. Even though he gets to be a coward and have his random security goon deliver the message and won't yeah. even call Comey himself, he does get to make these decisions. Okay, so yeah. last question for you is like, what, what's the end game here? So Trump will have to name a new FBI director. There will be hearings to confirm that individual. I mean, do you think that Democrats will make the entire conversation about Comey's firing and the Russia investigation or try to extract some promise that that investigation will continue on un, un, uh, messed with? I would think and I would hope that they would make confirmation of a new FBI director contingent upon the deputy attorney general appointing a special prosecutor. That's clearly the only way out of this is someone that is completely independent from the White House, completely independent from the chain of command at DOJ, has to be someone like that who investigates this entire um, uh, Russia case. But the question is, are there three Republicans that will join with them to demand that? Because if not, Republicans can jam a confirmation through and continue to ignore these calls for a, a special counsel. So I think that's the right play for Democrats. 
but there has to be pressure from everyone across the country to get a few Republicans to join hands. Yeah, I'm totally with you. We need we need some of these Republicans who are up in 2018, like Jeff Flake and Dean Heller, Jeff to Flake. Uh, to hear. Yeah, Flake was already tweeting some things that made it sound like um, he's a bit concerned or at least nervous about what this means for him politically. The other thing I think gives me a little bit of hope is you have to figure that there are some folks at the FBI, folks in DOJ, who are going to be absolutely enraged at what happened and concerned about this investigation getting swept under the rug and start blowing the whistle and going to Congress and going to the press and talking about what what it is they know and what Donald Trump might be concerned is revealed here. I think there are going to be a flood of leaks. I will tell you, I've already heard from a few reporters this morning chasing some really outlandish leads. Who, Who knows if any of them pan out, if any of them come true, but there are, you know, I think people are going to be concerned now that this entire thing gets quashed. And if I were an investigator on this case, I would start writing everything down. Every recommendation I would put in paper. I wouldn't do it orally to anyone. And I'd be ready to turn that over to committees on the Hill or to the press at a moment's notice. Yeah, absolutely. That is good advice for all of you guys listening out there. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much, man. I really, really appreciate you doing this. Uh, you did it on a, a yeah. absolute last second's notice. I, I was... Uh, DMing you at 5 a.m. Pacific time, and we are uh, now recording this at 6.46 a.m., so that's pretty damn good, man. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks.